Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Okay, there's a word up on the screen, authority. What comes to your mind when you think of authority? Or maybe you could use the word power. What comes to mind? What pictures do you get? Do you get the image of a referee, someone who is in charge for a specific time in a specific place under specific conditions? Um, I, don't, I didn't watch Match of the Day last night, but I assume there were plenty of occasions when there were referees exercising authority on football pitches and lots of times when players were calling into question their authority as well. Do you think maybe of a judge? Someone, I don't even think this is true. Do they have gavels, judges, or is that just from TV? I don't think that's true. Someone with a funny wig and a special dress and things like that. An authority um, in a, again, in a specific situation, but also in our country, um, to choose and to decide in a sensible way the laws that the rest of us have to abide by. Um, judges make uh, decisions, they pass judgment and sentences, and, and they have an authority to set the way that we live as a country. Maybe you think of the police Ooh. as a positive authority? I hope so. All of our police officers are very warm, fuzzy people who keep us safe, and we're very grateful for that. Um, But, you know, as it should be, when a a police officer speaks to you, you listen, you know, weighs into a situation, and they have that power, that gravitas um, to rule and to exercise authority in a specific situation. I had a fascinating conversation with someone, and as I tell you what the subject matter was, you will agree with me, utterly fascinating the other week. Um, I asked someone what they did as a hobby. They've recently retired, and I asked them what, what sort of things fill their time. And they said, well, do you know what? I'm a volunteer coast watcher. A volunteer coast watcher. Now, I've got no, I had no idea at the time what a volunteer coast watcher is, but he assured me, and as he described the situation, that it is a lot of fun for him, but also he likes it because it gives him power and authority. Basically, as uh, the Coast Guard's funding has been stripped down, as uh, lifeguards and things like that have um, kind of, in this age of shrinking public services, um, part of the work, part of the effort of keeping a watch on our seas goes over to volunteer Coast Watchers. Um, and he signed up down in Porth Call to be on a shift pattern. I think he does eight hours twice a week, sitting in a kind of lighthousey looking thing, watching the coast, making sure that everything is going okay. I thought, this doesn't sound like much fun to me. But he was describing the effect of having a uniform. So to do this job, he has to wear a uniform, certain colour trousers, certain colour jumper, and they've got like badges and pins to put on their shoulders. And he says it's amazing how people, when he's dressed in his uniform, just listen to him. He can park where he wants in Porthcawl, 
you know anything about Porth Call and their annual Elvis festivals, you know that getting around there is difficult. He says, it's amazing. I've got a badge. I can get through roads that are closed for the festival. I can just drive up. I can park where I want. When I speak to people outside, they assume, because I'm dressed in this, that I'm an authority figure and that I have power. What I say carries weight. So I wonder what your perception of authority is. Well, in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel, you can open it up if you want to follow along. Chapter 6, there is a story of particular authority, power. And it's, it's weird. As I was saying earlier, you read through Mark's Gospel in one big chunk, and we come in chapter 6 to a story that really stands out because it's not a story about Jesus. Virtually everything that... There you are. Take your phone. uh, Make sure it's on silent. Virtually everything that Mark writes in his gospel about Jesus Christ is unsurprisingly about Jesus Christ. But you get to chapter 6 and verse 14 and down a little bit, and all of a sudden, it's a story about two other characters. It's a story about John the Baptist... Um, if you've got a Bible with a heading, it it gives the game away. John the Baptist is beheaded. Um, But really, it's a story about a guy called King Herod. Now, if I can get this working this week or not. Here we go. There he is. Now, why have I put quotation marks over King Herod? Why have I put quotation marks over King Herod? Well, it's because even though Mark refers to him as a king... And even though that's a title many people used of him in the contemporary circles, it's even a way that he thought about himself. Actually, Herod was not a king. And that's important for the story. He's someone who's called a king by people around him in contemporary culture. He's a person who called himself a king, but he wasn't actually a king himself. Just to clear the muddy waters. There's lots of Herods kicking around in the New Testament. He was actually one of the sons of King Herod, more properly a king, off of the nativity story. We know of Herod, the baddie who comes in, who tries to trick the wise men, the magi, who has this decree to kill all of the the boys who are under two years old. King Herod, who we meet in chapter 6, is his son. And what happened was King Herod, off of the nativity, had four sons. And when he died, his kingdom, which was an area really that he ruled under the authority of Rome, was divided in four and given to each of those sons. So the King Herod that we meet in Mark chapter 6, the King Herod who uh, ends up beheading John the Baptist and who was part of Jesus' trial, was actually only in charge of a quarter of his dad's kingdom, which his dad only ruled by the authority of Rome. So he's quite a few steps removed from being an actual king. But he has this title. It's what people in common kind of speech called him. He has other things, presumably, that made him look like a king. He probably wore a crown. He had officials. He had a throne. Lots of these things. So whether he's a king or not, it's fair to say that he's an authority figure even before we get to discussing him. And and we'll be reading this section of Mark's Gospel together now, um, verses 14 down to 29. King Herod, verse 14. 
cured about this, that is, Jesus' name becoming well-known. Some were saying about Jesus that this is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead, and that is why he has miraculous powers at work at him. Others said, hmm, he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Um, this is kind of set in the scene for the story of King Herod. Um, and it's not surprising that people are venturing opinions over who Jesus is, even the top brass, even uh, someone in his little patch, in his little area, King Herod, the ruler, the governor, however you want to describe him, even he is asking the question, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy who's at work in my zone, my sphere of influence, who is doing amazing things? Who is getting people following me? Verse 17. Why is it that King Herod thought that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life? Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So think about what's going on there, the relationship between Herod and John the Baptist here. John the Baptist, the guy who was going before Jesus, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was about to come and that people should repent and be baptized. He was a man of God. He was the, the last prophet, if you like. He'd seen what was going on in Herod's court, that Herod had stolen his brother's wife and had illegally wed himself to her and had stood up and said, this shouldn't be. And surprisingly, Herod didn't really like that. He didn't really like his authority, his life choices being questioned. But especially Herodias, his new wife, didn't like it. But it's an interesting relationship, isn't it? Because it says there that Herod liked listening to John. That he recognized him as a holy man, as a righteous man. And so his actions are in some ways a display of authority. Arrest him, bind him send him to jail, but in some ways a complete and utter lack of authority because he didn't really have anything against John. He wanted John and he respected John and there's a sense in which we get the feeling that Herod wanted to listen and to respond to John, don't we? You get that sense, you get that feeling as you're reading it in the description of how Herod responds to John. So there's a, there's a measure of him flexing his muscles but also a measure of him being manipulated by Herodias, his wife. So what happens next? Well, verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. And on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Here's a bit of Herod, what I like to call peacocking, kind of properly showing all his feathers. 
It's a special occasion. It's my birthday. Everybody should be celebrating because I am such an important person. I'll throw a banquet. And oh, it's going to be the creme de la creme of Galilee who turn up. Do you see it? It says the high officials, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. Here's an opportunity for everybody who's anybody to see how much of a king I truly am. Verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, again, kind of trying to show off in front of his friends, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? (coughs) And her mother responded, the head of John the Baptist. And once the girl hurried in to the king with a request, I want you to give me right here, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went out, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I mean, it's a, tr- it's a tragic story, isn't it? Here's John the Baptist, kind of an an honest, righteous, holy prophet, picking out, spotting something which the entire land would have known was wrong, that Herod had taken his brother's wife and married her. Herod, not really having much against John, trying to walk that tightrope of keeping his wife happy, but also trying to save the guy that he likes, creates for himself this difficult situation where he rashly makes an oath in front of people that he's trying to impress. And all of these things conspire to John losing his life. But you see how even in commanding the death of someone, Herod is someone who has no power at all. Do you see that in the story? How this king, who is able to take someone's life and does, is totally and utterly powerless in the circumstances. You see, he didn't want John even to be arrested. He certainly didn't want John to be killed. And yet, what were the forces that were making him end John's life? There was pride, wasn't there, at work in his life. You see that especially in verse 26. That though he was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests, this was an occasion for him to show just how great he was. And then he'd accidentally made a promise that he didn't really want to keep. But he couldn't back down. He couldn't turn to the girl and say, oh, no. Yeah, all right, be sensible now. Anything but killing John the Baptist. He couldn't do it. Pride and saving face meant that he had to carry out this gruesome order. There was also the the power and the manipulation of the relationships that he had around him. 
that he wasn't so much in charge of circumstances and his family life and things like that, that whatever he said went. He had to listen to those who were about him. Ultimately, it was Herodias who had properly taken offense at John that got her way. None of the events here really are Herod exercising authority, are they? Do you see that? They might look a little bit like flexing of his muscles, but they're actually the actions of a weak man, a slave rather than a king. What are we to make of that story? Well, I think that Mark, trying to tell us about Jesus, and then all of a sudden changing tack and telling us a story about King Herod, is helping us or forcing us really to consider what it looks like and what it means to be a true king. Because King Herod, though he's not a king, isn't the only king we've met in Mark's gospel up until this point, is he? Mark is helping us by contrast to consider what sort of king Jesus is. The other king that we've met, of course, is Jesus. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know. Has Jesus claimed to be a king yet? Has Mark called him a king yet? Surely there are other titles, there are other things going on. Are they supposed to be linked? Are we supposed to read about Herod and be thinking about Jesus? Well, make no mistake about it. Jesus has explicitly and implicitly been announcing himself as a new king on the scene. Think about the titles that Jesus has used for himself. On a number of occasions, he's gone out of his way to call himself the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was a loaded term in this culture. It comes actually from the book of Daniel uh, and a vision that Daniel has of a human being who has all the authority and status and power of God. It's a, it's a vision and it's a picture of a human being who sits, not on an earthly throne, but on an eternal throne. So Jesus has quite literally, in the language that he's been using about himself, been saying, here I am, the king above all kings. More than that, Mark has called him the Messiah, the Christ. Again, a term which first-time listeners, original listeners would have understood straight away, ah, here is someone, a king, who is going to rescue. But also, he's been doing kingly things or speaking about God's kingdom and showing it through his life and his actions, isn't he? We read in chapter 1 that John is arrested, presumably by Herod, and straight away Jesus goes out saying, repent, The kingdom of God is near. Well, a kingdom has to have a king, doesn't it? So Jesus has been positioning himself as the king from the very start. And yet, he's been doing it in a way quite unlike Herod. Think about Herod taking this title, claiming this title for himself, making it so that he and other people call him king. Surrounding himself with the trappings of a king, holding a party to celebrate his birthday and inviting officials around him like a king, passing sentence on people's lives, presumably like a king. Well, what has Jesus been doing? He's been playing it down, almost. Whilst explicitly and implicitly telling people that he's the king, he's been playing it down, hasn't he? He's been telling people who have been healed, 
telling people who have been set free to keep quiet about it, to not go and shout it from the rooftops, to not go into the center of the towns and declare that Jesus is the one to come. He's been playing it down. Herod is one who would have looked like a king in every single way that we might imagine. He had all the trappings. But Jesus is one who we really struggle with to identify as a king because in virtually every single way, he doesn't look like it. Chapter 6 starts with verse 1. You can go. And the story of Jesus going back home to his, his proper home. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been um, living in Capernaum. Um, that's kind of where he's grown up and moved to, the big town, the place where the work is and things like that. And it's described as him going home there. But we know that he's from Nazareth originally. And chapter 6 starts off with a story of him going back to Nazareth. Verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him, and what are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? And Simon and aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You see, when Jesus even goes home, there are none of the trappings, there are none of the visuals, there are none of the kind of forcing the issue on people. In fact, Jesus comes as one that presents us with a real conundrum. They, they know about him. They can't get their heads around it. How is this one talking like a king and acting like one who has real power and authority when we know so much of his past? They don't challenge his actions. I think that's fascinating. I think that's fascinating really throughout the book of Mark that nobody calls into question whether Jesus actually did the things that Mark says that he did. People just call into question what they mean and whether he should be saying these things and doing these things. But that's another point. They don't call it into question. What they do call into question is this mystery of a man with no theological education. No one who, a man who hadn't been, if you like, groomed, brought up, trained to be doing the things that he was now doing. Speaking of upbringing, they use a really, really interesting phrase about his origins, don't they? They describe him as Mary's son. Like culturally, and I think this is possibly even true for us today, you would be described as the son of your father, not the son of your mother. Presumably, Joseph is dead at this point. He's, he's not in the story at all. But it's still very, very interesting, the language that they use, that they're hinting at, well, this is a guy who is coming to us and speaking like someone who is the king of the universe, and he's acting like it too with his miracles, and yet we remember... Ah, we've got longer memories than that, Jesus. We remember when you were a boy or when you were being born and that whole controversy of Mary being pregnant before she got married to Joseph. We wouldn't go as far as calling you Joseph's son. In two ways, they basically try to insult him, to bring him down a peg or two, to say he's an uneducated, illegitimate person. How dare he stand before us 
and look the way that he does. Can you see how he's totally in contrast to Herod? Herod, not a king, literally not a king, but called a king and dressed like a king and in many ways acting like a king. And then Jesus, actually a king and kind of declaring it, if you like, on the quiet and on the side, but totally and utterly not looking like the king that people are expecting him to be. I said it's fascinating that they don't deny his miracles. They just are amazed by them. And how many miracles have we seen by Jesus? Someone who can cast out demons. Someone who can heal from leprosy. Someone who can restore from paralysis. Someone who can calm a storm. Someone who can heal a blind person. Someone who can literally, we read it last week, didn't we? Raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And yet, they deny him. They deny him. Jesus is one who has authority, whether people recognize it or not. Herod is someone who has no authority, whether he's exercising it or not. But the story does continue a little bit. And I think here really is the litmus test for how much authority and power Jesus has. Does he have authority and power when he gives it away? That is, when he delegates something, is it still his authority and his power? Well, if you read from verse 7 downwards, this is what we, we find out. That he calls to him the twelve who had been set apart, and he began sending them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. He gives them a list of instructions. Don't take anything for the journey, um, no bread, no bag, no money, uh, wear sandals, no extra shirt, uh, about where to stay, how to stay and how to leave a place. Verse 12, though, I think is so key. They went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out demons and anointed sick people with oil and healed them. That Jesus, who has that authority himself to such a degree that when he passes it on to somebody else, when he instructs it and gives it to his disciples, they have that authority and that power too. Like, think about that. What power and authority and rule must Jesus have that when he instructs other people to wield it, they have it too. We've got to think about authority then in our own lives, don't we? If Mark presents us with these two pictures of someone who looks like so little but has so much versus someone who looks like so much and has so little, where does the authority lie in our lives? Where does the power lie in our lives? I think there's a case to be made that we all think of ourselves, act in our own lives like little Herods, like little Herods in our own worlds, that we puff ourselves up, that we elevate ourselves, that we claim for ourselves a status and a position which really we do not have. We go through life, we act in our lives, we make decisions which impact us and other people as if we hold all the power, as if we hold all the authority, 
as if everything that happens is up to us. I think one of the things Herod's story teaches us is that truly that is an illusion. That we're not in control. That we are slaves to circumstances, slaves to one another, and even slaves to our own selfish, prideful ways. I think a great example of this is when it comes to having to say sorry for something. When we've done something wrong, when we've hurt someone, when we've sinned against someone, when we've let someone down, how difficult we find it to say sorry. Why is that? Surely it's because we're people who are obsessed with saving face, obsessed with maintaining that position, that state as that place on our own thrones. That to come and to say sorry, to humiliate yourself, to say that you are a person who has made mistakes is really difficult. And it requires stepping down from a throne, doesn't it? It requires getting off our high horses and saying, do you know what? I'm not everything that I've ever made out to be. I'm flawed. I'm weak. I do things that I shouldn't and I don't do things that I should. When we live our lives as if we are kings, we live an illusion. So is that where the authority is in your life, do you think? Do you think that you do live as if everything is up to you? That you do and you live and you act exactly the way that you want? You aren't held or manipulated by any outside influences? If you think that's the case, then you are, you are being fooled. All of us, all of us act in ways that we know that we shouldn't. Perhaps in your life you think that there is another authority though. There's a Herod that's outside you. That your lives are being controlled by another person or an institution or something like that. That you are being manipulated and you are being forced to live in a certain way because they hold all the power. Maybe you, you really do feel like that. That your life is being governed by some outside force and you wish that you had the authority yourself. And you're terrified how you might act. You're terrified, you think that you have to act a specific way because they want you to act like that. They want you to live like that. They want you to do this and to do that. Surely Herod's story teaches us that even the highest earthly authority ultimately isn't in charge. That there is an authority that is above all institutions and above all people in our lives and that is the third option and the place that we really should be looking for for authority and power and influence in our lives, and that is Jesus himself. All through Mark, he's been showing us, helping us to see piece by piece by piece just how unrivaled in his power Jesus is, how unmatched he is in his compassion and his love to use that power for people's good. And this is why we struggle with it. Because when we see Jesus, sometimes we think of him as largely unimpressive. Because that power and that authority is possibly, you might say, in our world and in our lives, invisible. It is far away. And yet it is undeniable. Do you know what I love about Jesus' authority, though? Jesus' authority, the one who sits on the highest throne, it is an amazingly humble authority. 
I spoke about us not being willing to get off our thrones and to say sorry, to admit our mistakes, to admit our flaws, because that would make us weak. Jesus is one who, having all that authority, is willing to step down and to enter in. He's willing to walk around, not with the trappings of um, universal glory and honor and praise. He's willing to slum it with people like you and me. He's willing to go back home and to be bad-mouthed by people who had known him for 30-odd years. He's willing, ultimately, to exercise his authority in such a way that he'd die for us. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I will take it back up again. That is amazing, genuine, real power. Not someone who is, with a click of their fingers, able to cast judgment on someone else and have them killed. Not someone who is manipulated by circumstance and needs to save face and so the same thing, they click their fingers, someone is killed. But someone who is able to lay down their lives for us and take it back up again. You might think that all authority and power in the world is in you. You're wrong. You may think that all authority and power in the world is somewhere else, in someone else or in something else. You're wrong. All authority and power in the world rests with Jesus. And that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Because Jesus exercises it for our good. We use it to puff ourselves up. Others use it to puff themselves up. But Jesus uses it to rescue people. People who have been robbed of the freedom that we were made to have. Jesus is a king who comes and lives and dies for us. So, I'll leave you with this question then. Who is the authority in your life? Where does the power lie? If you think it's with you, hand it over to Jesus. If you think it's with somebody else, flee and find peace and rescue in Jesus. And if you're already a Christian, live like it sits with Jesus. Live like it sits with Jesus. I'm going to pray, and the guys are going to come up and they're going to sing again. Lord God, we thank you. The weak, foolish, proud people like Herod do not hold the real authority. Lord, that we, our feeble, error-prone people, do not hold the real authority. But Jesus holds the real power. Jesus holds the real authority. And that he is a good king who is willing even to sacrifice for those who badmouth him and reject him. Lord, help us to see in our own headspaces, in our own hearts, where that true authority lies. Help us to reorientate how we live and how we react to situations. Help us in our hearts to find peace and comfort in the, in the King who loves, the King who sacrifices for our sake. Amen.
hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.